You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Romans 12, beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Is this a little bit better? Can you see me a little bit better than last week? Okay. I don't think I'm going to do that, but I'll do a six-inch platform and stare into blinding lights because I love you that much. Rene Descartes once famously said, I think, therefore, I am. And it changed philosophy forever. But what it also did was it it impacted how we in the West view faith, our belief about God, the world, and specifically about ourselves. If I believe it is true about me, well, then it's true about me. Faith, in in this way of thinking, faith is all about getting the right information into our brains and thinking right thoughts. And if I think it, well, then, of course, I'm going to believe, I'm going to become it. I remember as a child the famous story, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think my way over that hill. We even send each other Thoughts, sending prayers and thoughts your way, as if thoughts not only have the power to change our lives, but somehow I'm, I'm moving my thoughts towards you, and they're going to change your life as well. And yet for many of us, if not all of us, if we're going to be honest this afternoon, there's still a huge gap between what we believe to be true and how we actually live. I believe that I am cared for and provided for by God, but I often live as if I need to figure things out. I believe that prayer is absolutely essential for my well-being and for the Christian life, and yet I worry and I scramble and I try to fix things on my own. I believe that I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ, and yet I often live like I've got to try to make something of myself and of my life. The gap between what we know and how we actually live can be very discouraging. It can be a very daunting, large gap. And yet, we do this silly thing. What we try to do is we try to bridge that gap 
with more information, with more knowledge. If I just knew a little bit more, well, then I would be able to change my life. If I just read one more parenting book, <laughs> then I'd be killing it in the area of parenting. If I just heard one good sermon on this topic, well, then I, I feel I could be ready and confident to make certain changes. We often think that simply information leads to transformation. And so we read the books, and we listen to the sermons, and we stream the podcasts, and we wait. And we wait. I'm supposed to click my heels together. What's going on here? Where, why is the magic not happening? Why do I still feel the same? I put in the time. I put the information in there, and yet I still feel the same way. Why am I still drawn towards these bad habits? Why didn't it, it work? What Paul is showing us here in Romans 12 is that renewal, don't hear me wrong, renewal does begin in our minds. This does involve our thinking and our feeling and our motives and all of the internal stuff, but it doesn't end there. That's just the beginning of the chapter. That's just the beginning of the transformation process. To experience true and lasting change in our lives, it's got to translate into real life stuff or else it's empty and it's theoretical. Without practical expression, we are often left with an even bigger gap between what we know and how we're living. And so the way that it translates, the way that faith becomes real, embodied, or to borrow from the language of Paul, genuine, it's got to translate specifically into the area of our relationships. Here's the big idea today, that transformation that begins in our mind is worked out in our community. Think about it. We are relational people. We are created in the image of a relational God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. People who have been divided and isolated and alienated by sin and yet offered reconciliation through faith in Jesus Christ. Where else would healing where else would growth, where else would transformation occur other than within relationships? An author named David, David Benner put it this way, transformation, and I, I believe he's talking about the transformation that Paul's talking about here. Transformation is a shift from a focus on me to an awareness of the greater we. We live with me as the basic reference point for life. And when we do, I experience fundamental existential alienation. Not only am I alienated from others, but paradoxically, I am alienated from my deepest self. Why? For my deepest and truest self is not an isolated self, but finds its meaning and fulfillment only in the we of community. That's a fancy way of saying the you that you are searching for, the you that you are pursuing, the you that you are trying to build up in your life is not found in you. It's found in us. And specifically, the Christ-centered us. And so when the Spirit of God seeks to transform our lives, Romans 8 shows us that he aims specifically, he takes aim at our relationships. The way that he changes us 
is that he changes our love and how we love. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage under three headings, the way we love, who we love, and how we love. Looking first at the way that we love. And I'm going to have three subpoints. There they are for you if you're taking notes. How, you know, what, what is the way that we are to love? Well, the first way that we see here is that we are to love genuinely. Look with me again in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Love be genuine. This is Paul's primary point. In fact, some commentators believe that this was a heading to the paragraph that sort of found itself into the body of the text. Let love be genuine. Another famous philosopher once said these words, I got fake people showing fake love to me, straight up to my face, straight up to my face. And this is what Paul is warning us about. We read it as let love be genuine. It sounds like a very positive instruction, but in the original language, it reads love without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. This word hypocrite, the, the root word here, has a really interesting history because in the ancient Greco-Roman world, world, the word hypocrite was synonymous with actor. To be an actor was to be a hypocrite. And it was the name of an individual who would masquerade on stage playing a certain character, and often with a very large mask, to pre pre pretending to be something or someone that they are not. And Paul is saying, quite simply, let love be unmasked. Let your love be unmasked. We learn from a very early age how to act. Keep up appearances. Pretend to care. Pretend to be okay. Laugh when things are not okay. Smile and put on, you know, appearances. Smile and act okay. It's, it's as if we were all trained in these little mini Juilliard schools in our own homes, learning how to act as adults. And yet many of us in our adult lives experience shallow relationships quite simply because we were trained and formed in dishonesty. We think that truthfulness, truthfulness is going to compromise our meaningful relationships when in reality, truthfulness is what makes relationships meaningful in the first place. The love that we're called to have for one another is a love that has removed the masks and as vulnerable as it may feel, as vulnerable as it may ex we may experience it, it's a love that is honest honest about who we are, and also honest with other people. Love, as we see here, is willing to confront, not harshly, not combatively, but to confront. Love speaks the truth. Love is willing to be open. Love is honest and raw, and even detests what is wrong so that we can embrace what is right. Love is genuine. What's the way that we're to love? Secondly, we're to love consistently. Look at me in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. This is not a sporadic, when I feel like it, when it's convenient, if it fits into my schedule, if I've got the time and energy kind of love. No, this is devoted love, consistent love, week in and week out love. We live in a world filled with starters. 
Everyone is trying to start something. But the question for us this evening, this afternoon, is this. Where are the stairs? I've got to be honest with you. I am not impressed with people that have great ideas. Everyone has great ideas. And I personally, personal feelings here, am no longer impressed by people that start amazing things. What's impressive in this world especially is those who stick it out. Those, those who have staying power. To begin something is good, but to stick it out is what brings reward. And the same is true when it comes to our relationships. We cannot, we simply cannot experience the benefits of a long-term relationship immediately. It just doesn't come. It requires time. It requires devotion. I often hear people kind of loathing the, the lack of relationships in, in their lives. Like, I don't have deep, meaningful relationships. I don't have trusting relationships. I even talk to people that are jealous, even within the church, about how other people are experiencing meaningful relationships, and yet I don't have them. And I think what we forget is that relationships that are healthy and strong and trusting, not only did they take years and sometimes even decades to form, but they are often relationships that have been tested and challenged and brought through the ringer. They're relationships that have experienced that trial by fire where it wasn't really certain if it would last, and yet they persevered, pushed through it, and now they're experiencing a depth of relationship that they otherwise wouldn't have experienced. So many people want the benefits of strong relationships, and yet we're unwilling to be consistent enough to ever experience it. You see, this isn't just about relationships. Remember, this is about transformation. And this is how God forms us within community. This is how God uses relationships to form us as men, women, and children. As we stick it out, as we persevere, as we push through awkwardness and challenge and resist all the temptations to be like, this is weird, I'm out of here. He, God, makes us a people of devotion. This is how we become reliable people. This is how we become consistent people. What is the way that we're to love thirdly? We're to love fervently. Love fervently. Look with me in verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Now, we don't often use this word fervent. I feel very fervent for you. But this is actually a very deep and meaningful word. The word here for fervent literally means set on fire. Inferno. This is so much more than just like happy, clappy Christianity or like put on a smile, enthusiastic Christianity. This is more like the prophet Jeremiah who said that the word of God is in my heart, shut up like fire in my bones that cannot be contained. This is spiritual combustion. And yet what do we do? We get nervous and we quench it. In times of feeling emotionally depleted, people naturally revert to rationing. Like people in a war or people on, if you ever find yourself on a deserted island, you assess what you have and then you ration out what you have 
for the sake of survival. I have so many portions and I'm going to have to make it last. So I ration it out. And likewise, in moments like the moment that many of us find ourselves in right now, sort of mid to post-pandemic, when we feel depleted, emotionally depleted, when we feel like the future is uncertain, what do we do? We go into survival mode and we ration our emotional resources and we ration specifically our love for others. What do we do? We begin to put significant boundaries around how we love others. We're fearful of giving away our time and our energy because we're afraid of being drained of what little time and energy we already have. And what do we do? We end up avoiding people. We isolate. We don't return calls. We don't return text messages. We stop showing up to church. We stop showing up to Bible study. We cut off relationships. We ghost people. And in the end, we don't love fervently. We love cautiously and moderately. And it may feel safe, and I would bet that you're going to actually today get a lot of voices that would affirm that this is the emotionally responsible thing to do. Some social media influencer who has no right to speak into your life is going to tell you to keep doing this and to keep putting boundaries around your life and, and to continue to love moderately, but in, the rea- but in the long run, biblically speaking, this is spiritually stifling. Moderation sees love as a commodity that is ours to keep safe. Fervency sees love as an endless supply, which is God's to give. Friend, love was never yours to begin with, and fire was never meant to be safe. Uh, Ray Ortland put it this way, you and I are in no danger of loving too earnestly. Have I been loving too earnestly this week? You don't even have to ask yourself that. The answer is no. We are in serious danger of loving too moderately. The gospel says, down with moderate love. That's the old you. Sure, you were loving before you were born again, but you were guarded about it. You were selective. But God is spreading earnest love like his own love. That's the new born again you. Go for it. You need to hear that today, Christian. Down with moderate love. Throw yourself completely in to earnest, fervent love because God will continue to supply you those resources. It will never run dry because God's love never runs dry. Let's look at our second point here. In community, the Spirit of God shapes, secondly, who we love. Who we love. One of Jesus' critiques of the religious community of his time was not so much of whether or not they were loving people, but specifically who they chose to love. Jesus is even recorded asking the the religious community, for if you love those who love you, what, what, what reward is there? Like, That's not impressive that you love people that love you. Don't even the tax collectors do that? Isn't that like a pagan practice? See, they were selective with their love, choosing, like many of us, to love those who looked, believed, worshipped, and everything like them. 
the ones who are easy to love. Picture that person in your life that is just easy to love. It's just easy to love them. And while Jesus would never prohibit us from loving people that are similar to us, and he's definitely not prohibiting us from loving people that are easy to love, the point is that it's got to be broader. It's got to be broader. And so Paul captures the nature of this broad love that we are to display in our lives. And he begins with, our fo- with a focus on love for church family. Who are we to love? We're to love our church family. Look at me in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, in the English language, we have one single word to describe love. I love my wife. I love my children. I love my church. I love Jesus Christ. I love, at one point in my life, I loved Mexican food before I didn't eat meat. But I loved Mexican food. I love this. I love that. I love all these certain things. One word to capture the meaning for such a wide variety of emotions and expressions. But in the original language of the New Testament, there were actually many words. They actually believed that there was about seven common words for love. And the most, the foremost common words for love were these. Agape, which is sacrificial love. Eros, which was romantic, sensual love, storge, which is family love, and then Philadelphia, which is brotherly love. It's interesting, in this verse, Paul uses two of those words, storge and Philadelphia, to describe relationships within the church. Why? Family love, brotherly love. And the answer is because the church is the primary place that we express and we experience family and brotherly love. It's where we weep with those who weep. It's where we rejoice with those who rejoice. It's where we care for others and we give money and we pray for others and we serve others and we do all these things as if they were our own flesh and blood. That's Jesus' vision at least. Both in Matthew and Mark, it records this scene where Jesus' is biological mother and brothers were seeking Jesus. He was with his disciples. They come to where he is with his disciples, and it says that he, they sent in someone to get him and to bring him home. Essentially what Jesus' mom, Mary, and his brothers were saying, okay, it's time for Jesus to come spend time with his real family. I know you got your cute little church family thing here, but it's time for him to spend time with his real family. And for those of us today in the 21st century who live in a place and in a time where children and family have been absolutely idolized, even within the church, Jesus says something very uncomfortable and yet something very beautiful. Mark chapter 3, and he answered, Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You know what Jesus is saying? This is my real family. This is my true family. And it's this kind of family, brotherly love and affection that historically contributed to the explosive growth 
of the Christian church in the early centuries of Christianity. And I believe, mark my word, I believe that this is the kind of love that is gonna have the greatest impact for the sake of the gospel in our city as well. When we love each other and we're convinced that we are actually family. A writer from the second century who was a strong critic of Christianity, not a fan of Jesus, not a fan of this thing. He wrote this in the second century. His name was Lucian. He said, the earnestness with which the people of this religion help one another in their needs is incredible. They spare themselves nothing for this end. For their first lawgiver, Jesus, for their first lawgiver, put it in their heads that they were all brethren. You know what he's saying? He's saying somehow this Jesus guy convince them, me must have brainwashed them or something, that despite all of their differences, that they were family. Can you believe how silly and strange that is? Who's laughing now? <laughs> 2,000 years later, Lucian's in the grave, and Christ in his church is still alive. Amen. They were convinced. Here's the question. Here's a real question for us. Are we convinced? Are we convinced of this? Has Jesus gotten it into our heads as well? Now, secondly, Paul focuses on love for strangers. Look at me again, or look at me in verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What is hospitality? Hospitality is warm welcome. It's an invitation to belong, it's thoughtfulness, it's practical care. Typically today, hospitality involves inviting friends and family over to your home and welcoming them in your home. And while it can and it definitely should include friends and family and even fellow saints, the word here is very strange. The word hospitality in the original language simply means Lover of strangers. Lover of strangers. It's one thing to love those you know, and it's good. But it's another thing to love those who you don't know. Who you don't know. I thought about this this last week. Isn't it interesting how when you hear about a, some sort of tragedy that hits close to someone that you love, I thought about this because a hurricane passed right by where my brother lives this last week. Uh, or a shooting happens in a city. Or a devastating earthquake devastates an area or a fire tears through some region and you reach out to that person that you know lives near there and you ask are you okay there's that immediate sense of relief when you find out that they weren't one of the ones that died that they weren't one of the ones that were seriously injured and that's not wrong itself but I had to do some heart work and some real deep reflection and it made me reconsider What's my love for strangers like? Because literally what I was saying was, phew, it's just strangers that died. It's just people I will never meet again that died and are devastated and now their lives are torn apart. The love of God that we as believers steward in our lives is a kind that recognizes the dignity and the worth in all kinds of people that seeks to associate with them, to extend care for them, to open our lives, to open our hearts, to open our emotions, 
to open our resources, our tables, and certainly our church to those who are different, to those who don't yet belong, to those who may not fit in yet. And then thirdly, and I think the most challenging here, Paul focuses on love for enemies, love for our enemies. Now, there are a number of stories I wanted to share this afternoon that I've shared over the years. Martin Luther King, who called for non-retaliation in the face of, you know, tremendous harshness. Corey Ten Boone, who forgave one of the harsh guards that was over the concentration camp where she was imprisoned. Miroslav Volf's uh, father, who forgave the soldier whose negligence led to their son's accidental death, and on and on and on. Stories that really show us that if you respond to hate with hate, in the long run, you're going to become what you hate. You will end up actually embodying the very things that you despise in your enemies. But if you respond with love, what, what you're doing is you're actually joining Jesus in his overcoming work, in his overturning work, in his renewing work. And only love breaks the cycle, the Bible tells us. And I wanted to share some stories like that, but then I realized that it's, it's really easy to be inspired by stories of significant Christians throughout history loving their enemies and then leave totally unaffected, totally unchallenged, totally unchallenged to think about our own relationships, forgetting that Paul is calling us to consider our lives. We may not face the kind of enmity that inspiring Christians from history faced. But let's be honest. We nurse our grudges. We nurse our grudges. And we have that impulse to get even, children, <laughs> to get even with your sibling. We experience bitterness. We ruminate on those thoughts in bed or in the shower when we're getting ready. If we just had our chance to get even or if I just had that one opportunity to tell off that person what I would say and on and on and on. And it hits all of us. And so to whatever degree that we're experiencing enmity in our lives, these words are for us. And hear these words again spoken over us. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Why? Leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good, with good. It's who we love, but briefly and finally, how we love. How do we love like this? Now, as we step back and we look at this passage, there are a lot of instructions here. In fact, it's almost entirely instructions. As Amanda was reading, it's like instruction after instruction after instruction after instruction after instruction. And it's really easy to hear it and hear it and hear it and just get so overwhelmed by what you now need to do. 
well, these are the ways I need to change, and this is, what I'm la- this is where I'm lacking. Gosh, I thought I was a loving person. I wasn't even thinking about this people group. But we can't miss the big picture. We can't forget where we are in the book of Romans here. You see, everything that Paul has just instructed in, chapters 12, in chapter 12 is in light of everything that's been written to us in chapters 1 through 11, which means... Everything that we now need to do, chapter 12, is in light of everything that Jesus has done, chapters 1 through 11. And this is why Romans 12 begins with, therefore, this call to be transformed, to live, and to love completely differently is basically one simple instruction. And the simple instruction is this, Christian Become what you already are in Jesus. Live out the life, live out the love of Jesus that is now in you through faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I used to say this often, and I kind of was like, ah, it's becoming cliche. We need to hear it again. What God requires of us, God first provides for us. And surely in the area of love, The Apostle John would write these famous words in 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. Now, we often are going to read we should love because he first loved us. We we read a should into there. But I want us to read a can and a will into that. We can love because he first loved us. We will love because God first loved us. This this, This call to love genuinely and Consistently and fervently is first an invitation to receive the genuine, consistent, fervent love of God that is given to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When my children were very small, very small, we probably had two or three children at the time, and we were just getting out of the car, I still remember this night, and one of them, just learning to talk, said, Daddy is my lovest. Daddy is my lovest, which means I love him more than anyone in the entire world. That's a pretty breathtaking idea if I stop to think about it. And it's a title that's not just heartwarming. It's a title that is compelling. It's it's a title that, that makes me want to live into this. And this is the very title, this is the very name, this is the very identity that we are addressed with here in Romans chapter 12. Paul doesn't just call us saint or Christian. He says, beloved, God's lovest. God's lovest. How are we to love? And how are we to love like this? It's by first acknowledging that for the Christian, You are the beloved of God. You are not defined by how well you love. You are defined by how infinitely good God's love is for you. And now you are being loved into loving. If your love is masked and marked by pretense and shallowness and need and shame and fear today, The answer is not to try to unmask yourself. Good luck. The answer is to allow Jesus to unmask you. 
And how Jesus unmasks us is by us looking by faith to the cross where Jesus was stripped naked and he bore our shame for us. Today, if your love lacks consistency, look to the one who loved you through thick and thin, who sticks closer than a brother who will never leave you or forsake you. Today, if your love lacks fervor, if it's grown cold and stale and safe and apathetic, dwell on the fiery passion of Jesus Christ who experienced hell for you on the cross. Let that gospel warm you. If you're having a hard time loving brothers and sisters in Christ as if they're your own flesh and blood, today I want you to remember that you're not here by chance and you're not here by choice. You are here because God adopted you by grace into his family. If today you struggle to care for strangers, to open your life and your resources to people that you don't know, who look different and who act different than you, look to the one who welcomed you when you were a stranger, who opened his heavenly home to you, who made a place for you at his table. And today, finally, if you find it difficult, or maybe even, as someone told me this week, impossible, if you find it impossible to love your enemies, to forgive them, to entrust your pain and your vengeance into the good, faithful hands of God, today I want you to remember the one who looked on all those who despised him and cried out, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. The Savior who made enemies friends through his death and resurrection, and the one who has promised to return to avenge his beloved and right every wrong. If you're struggling to love, the answer is not dig deep. The answer is look to the cross, gaze upon this sacrifice, and let the love of God fill you. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for...